Hello and welcome to When It Mattered. I'm your host, Chitra Raghavan. On this episode, we will be talking to Dr. Shauna Pandya. She's a Canadian physician, citizen scientist, astronaut, and aquanaut, and pilot in training. She's a martial artist with a black belt in Taekwondo, and she also practices the Thai martial arts, Muay Thai. Dr. Pandya holds a bachelor's degree in neuroscience, a master's degree in space studies, and a medical degree. She is licensed as a general practitioner and is an accomplished public speaker. Dr. Pandya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I believe you fit the definition of a polymath, one who excels at many things. How old were you when you began to define your goals and ambitions? You know, I was always an ambitious kid. When I was four, I wanted to be a superhero or a transformer and save the world and fight crime. And then I realized that that's not something you could actually go to school to do. And so I set my ambitions a little bit lower and said, I'm going to be a billionaire and I'll be the world's richest person and use my wealth to solve all the world's problems. And that was when I was seven. And then I realized that you can't exactly go get a degree in billionaireology. So then I set my sights on the next ambition, which was becoming an astronaut and going to space. And that really set the trap for everything that came next, especially in my adult life as my uh, in my professional career. And so everything I did as a child, whether it was what I was reading about, my homework assignments, it was all about going to space and becoming an astronaut. And that laid the foundation for, for my professional life. You were an avid reader and you said it caused your mom a little bit of concern. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really funny story. So when I was in the second grade, I just loved reading. All I would do would be read. So at recess, regardless of whether it was the middle of winter or rain or shine, I would just have a book and I would just read in a corner to the point where my, my teacher called my mom about it. And one day my mom was listening to a child psychologist on a radio talk show and they were talking about problems um, with raising children. And my mom called into this child psychologist and she said, my kid reads too much. What do I do about that? And that was kind of emblematic of, of the kind of child I was. Was there a moment when you realized your passion for space? I think it was always a fixture for me growing up. You know, some of my fondest memories are camping with my family, going to these beautiful locations away from city lights, just seeing the dark night sky and the stars leap out at you. I remember on one camping trip when I was seven, it was the Leonids meteor shower. And all we did was stay up till 2 a.m. watching shooting stars through the sky. And it was, you know, just this, this wonderful moment where you're truly aware of how beautiful and mysterious and big the universe is. And my, my childhood was peppered with experiences like these. Um, I grew up in the 90s when we had several Canadian astronauts fly as shuttle astronauts. And so in commemoration, Canada Post, our version of the U.S. Post Office, released these commemorative little brochures that were really interactive. They were holographic and they had pullouts and pop-ups and they were all about space. They were all about facts of our solar system. You know, what is the length of a day on Jupiter? What is the density of Saturn? How much would you weigh on Mars? And I was just obsessed with it. And so anything that was related to space always leapt out at me during my childhood. So I can't say that there was one defining moment. But you also wanted to be a neurosurgeon. You had kind of these dueling ambitions. How did you end up reconciling those two and then 
making uh, both your dreams come true in the end. Yeah, so actually my dream to be a neurosurgeon fed directly off my astronaut ambitions. And so I was a huge fan of Dr. Roberta Bondar, the first Canadian woman in space. And I modeled a lot of what I did after what she did. And so I looked at her and checked those tick boxes. So I said, she's Canadian, I'm Canadian. She's a female, I'm a female. She was a girl guide, I'm a girl guide. So the next three steps are become a physician, become a neuroscientist, and become an astronaut. And so that's what led me to do my degree in honors neuroscience, and then what led me to want to be a physician. And I knew she was a neuro-ophthalmologist, so I said, okay, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. And so through my high school years, you know, I was obsessed with becoming a neurosurgeon, and to the point where my, my high school yearbook is littered with comments of, I hope you'll be a great neurosurgeon one day. And, you know, if I ever see a two-for-one lobotomy deal, I'll know it's you. Just, you know, just fun comments like that from my friends. And so for me, that was actually not a dueling ambition, but a stepping stone to the path of being an astronaut while also bringing in my love for, for, for medicine. And so that was how that ambition fit into my overall career path. I've been rewatching the TV series Mad Men and the office manager in it, Joan Holloway, says to the copywriter Peggy Olson in words to the effect that you have to take a job and make it yours. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. You kind of created your own dream job. Yeah. You know, if you if you told me as a child the path that I would have followed and the things I get to do today, you know, they've surpassed even my childhood ambitions and dreams and every day just keeps getting better and better. And so to kind of continue the story. For a while, these ambitions were at odds and then they were complementary. And so going into neuroscience, my ambition was always to get to medical school, but I never truly forgot the space dream. And I would always look for opportunities for internships and, and further education opportunities in space. And when it came time to apply for medical school after my senior year, I realized that no, I wasn't guaranteed a place in medical school. I knew incredible candidates with perfect resumes, perfect personalities to be a doctor, perfect GPAs who weren't even getting interviews. And I thought, what can I do if I don't get into medical school that I would spend the year doing and I would be equally happy about what I'm doing? And so I had always known about something called the International Space University, and they had a master's program. So I applied to medical school and the master's program in the same year. And to my surprise, I got into both. And that was the beginning because I couldn't really forget about, about this space path. And I talked to the faculty of medicine and I was so lucky. They were so supportive and they encouraged me to, do, to defer admission for a year. And that was the start of everything that came next. So I was lucky enough to intern at the European Astronaut Center Crew Medical Support Office as part of that. I wrote some papers on telemedicine and medical technology spin-offs from space that have benefited medicine on Earth. I attended conferences, and all of that made me a competitive candidate for my next opportunity, which was an aerospace medical elective at NASA's Johnson Space Center, which was the most fun you could ever imagine. It was like Disneyland for space nerds, and it was just every day was this incredible adventure. And so coming full circle, we started talking about neurosurgery. After I finished medical school and all of these wonderful experiences, I came back to my neurosurgical dream and actually landed a residency spot as a neurosurgical resident. And for a few years, I trained as this. Um, but the fact of the matter is nobody wants a distracted brain surgeon. And I couldn't quite forget about my space dream. 
And, you know, again, it came to making a key decision. And so ultimately, I left neurosurgery, which was a bit heartbreaking at the time, but also led me to the path where today I'm a licensed general practitioner, and I am a citizen scientist astronaut candidate with Project Possum, which we can certainly talk about, but to to have at least trained in neurosurgery, to have been part of brain surgeries for a few short years was just an awe-inspiring, incredible experience. And medicine will always, it makes me grateful at least for for the good things that we often take for granted, like good health and, and, uh, you know, full mobility and having independence. Um, So it was an incredible journey that I could have never imagined. Before we get to some of the cool stuff you've been doing with the uh, with in space, uh, I just want to say, you know, like in my introduction, I didn't even get to the part where, in addition to all of what you've just described, you've co-founded a startup, you've completed emergency spacecraft and sea survival training, wilderness medical training, you have certifications in solo skydiving, open water nitrox, and rescue diving. You speak numerous languages. You even sing and play the piano. How do you get it all done? Uh, you know, how, how to many, what you're doing is something they could aspire to but never accomplish, just the sheer effort of it. What does it take to pull it off? I think um, it's easy to get overwhelmed when you, when you list it in, in a laundry list like that. But the fact of the matter is I'm not, you know, jumping in a plane then jumping out of the plane and then going to the OR and then delivering a baby and then having a full day at the hospital and then speaking Russian and Spanish and Hindi and then going to a skydiving trek all in the same 24 hours. We all have the same span of hours available to us into a day. We all have the same 24 hours available to us. And it matters what you get done um, is, a, is a function of how you prioritize. And so I like to say there's a season for everything. Even if you're a star varsity athlete and you play soccer and football and baseball and softball and badminton and tennis and volleyball, you're not doing all of those sports in the same day. And, you know, maybe there's seasons that overlap and maybe there's times that are more busy and more stressful than others. Certainly there, you know, there's times when some things will take priority over others. And so there's been times that have been incredibly busy in my life. I remember the, the summer and fall of 2016 were particularly busy as there was a, the Canadian Space Agency astronaut selection, my medical licensing exams. Um, I was trying to get hours on my flying up, get more diving certifications, skydiving certification, but also train for the World Cup of Taekwondo. And, you know, it was an incredibly busy time. It came down to prioritizing and also at times saying, okay, of all of these things, if something has to give, what will that be? What are my priorities? And then you just have to accept that. So the other way I, I like to ma- navigate my life is by maintaining what I call as a rate of scan. It's a principle I picked up through piloting and skydiving and scuba diving, but it's the same principle as if you're di- driving a car. And that principle is that you're always scanning between the road ahead of you, your instrument dashboard panel, uh, and your rearview mirror. And the point is you're trying to see where you are now in relation to where you want to be and where you've been since. And so goal setting is much the same. So you have your overarching goals, where you want to be in 10 years, for example, and then you reverse engineer your immediate term, your short term and your intermediate term, as well as your longer term goals based on that. And then you just scan between, you know, your immediate term goals, which you're going to do today versus your shorter and intermediate term goals to see what your progress is in relationship to your long-term goals. Um, so that's kind of how I navigate my life. Um, you know, it, it, it helps me stay focused and also it helps me gauge my progress at 
regular intervals. Your dream is to combine your medicine and space knowledge to further research in space medicine, including studying how bodies are reacting in a completely different environment from space, from the earth and to keep keep humans healthy and safe. And you're part of uh, numerous projects as a citizen astronaut to do just that. Can you uh, talk about a couple of those projects? Yeah, and so I am currently a citizen scientist astronaut candidate um, with Project Possum. And in the space world, we love our acronyms. And so Possum stands for Polar Suborbital Science of the Upper Mesosphere. So just to take a step back, we've all heard of governmental space agency astronauts like NASA astronauts and Canadian space agency astronauts. But as commercial space progresses, as we talk about going to space a suborbital flight with Blue Origin, for example, or Virgin Galactic, we're also talking about on a philosophical level, opening up access to space to far more people. And so the obvious implication is tourism. But the second implication is what kind of science can you do with that kind of access. And so Project Possum aims to take citizens who are passionate about space, who may not necessarily have trained in aeronomy or study of the upper mesosphere, to take them on a suborbital flight to conduct science in that medium. And so that's where the moniker citizen scientist comes from. So all, all that means is that there is, you're, you're contributing to science in a field outside of your own expertise. And so coming back to the mission of Possum, we, it started off wanting to study noctilucent clouds in the upper mesosphere. Um, and so these clouds are thought to be a marker of climate change, but they're relatively new in the atmospheric record. The earliest records in Indigenous people tracking and charting of the upper atmosphere and clouds and meteorological phenomena tends to be in the late 1800s. And now we know that these clouds are becoming more prevalent, they're appearing more frequently, and they're also descending to lower latitudes than before, whereas previously they tended to be very polar. And so the thought is they tend to be related to climate change and that they may be occurring more frequently because byproducts of, of methane emissions form a layer of ice crystals that high in the mesosphere, causing supercooling and ice crystals that form around these, this water layer, creating these, these cloud phenomena. And so the mission started off with sending up scientists to get high-resolution video, photography, atmospheric samples, thermal samples, to just gather more data about something that's a relatively new occurrence in the meteorological record. Since then, we have branched out to test spacesuits, IVA, or intravehicular activity spacesuits in zero-G. I was part of the first crew to test a commercial spacesuit in zero-gravity. We've tested the spacesuit in emergency spacecraft landing scenarios. And I've got to bring my own expertise to the project. I'm the chief instructor for operational space medicine, where we challenge our students to think and act and triage in resource-limited environments to make decisions in critical situations, and also push the boundaries of design based on what we know about human space missions and EBAs or extravehicular activities. So are you on track to become a full-fledged astronaut? That is my hope. So with the with Project Possum, we're at the mercy of the commercial space flight industry. So as soon as those companies start to fly, you know, that's when we can say 
we'll have spot uh, aboard, uh, or we can aim for a spot and aim for some science payloads and science experiments aboard one of those vehicles. So basically, the, this has been a burgeoning industry. Uh, you know, some of these companies have been around since the early 2000s and have increased their 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 testing and their readiness for space. Many of them are already selling tickets for space tourists, and so. Our hope is that following the suborbital path, we can send citizen scientists, astronauts to space above the 100 kilometer line where space begins. I'm sure this year must have particular emotional resonance for you as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, which you know captured global imagination and opened up a new frontier of space. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like for you to relive the Apollo legacy and to realize that you are a leader in this next leg of the journey into space exploration and what that exploration is shaping up to be? Being alive in the era of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing is is like being part of a springboard into the future. And so um, it's been an incredibly busy few weeks, you know, being part of these celebrations, you know, talking about what we've achieved, talking about the history of spaceflight, but also extrapolating on the future and talking about the future that we want to see. And so it's been, it's been inspiring to, to look back at what we've achieved and celebrate that. But it's also been equally or even more inspiring to, to use this as a springboard to say what comes next. And the future of spaceflight is incredibly exciting. We've talked about the commercial space flight industry um, with suborbital vehicles. We're now talking about a new moon rush or return to the moon. NASA has announced plans to land the first female on the moon by 2024, and Canadian Space Agency will be a partner in that with the Lunar Gateway. And, you know, it's an incredible time to, to be looking forward to the next 50 years. We've, we've talked about Apollo in the past 50, and now NASA is talking about Artemis, the twin of Apollo, but looking at bringing, bringing women to space, to the moon. And so, you know, imagining the future of of space, um, imagining what happens when you make space more accessible to all, um, you know, imagining the possibilities that can stem from that. It's, it's an incredibly exciting time and to be part of it is, um, is magical. And now with the Silicon Valley becoming more and more involved in space travel and space exploration, uh, I imagine that's uh, that's already we know it's already opening up the next frontier for exploration with uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin or Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, just to name a couple of them. So, uh, I where do you see that going, and how much? And of course, you've got SpaceX with Elon Musk. So, where is how is that all going to impact the future? So, I think the implications come back to a. a- bigger philosophical question. And that's what happens when you empower people? What happens when you give them platforms? And I think that the short answer is, you know, we open up our advancement and our progress as a species. You know, what happens when you give people internet access? What happens when you let anyone be a broadcaster on YouTube? You know, we've seen the explosion of of education, of things we know, of things we teach. And so extrapolating that to space. What happens when space becomes accessible to all? What happens if you make low Earth orbit and suborbital space easily accessible, not just to scientists and engineers and pilots and traditional astronauts, but what happens when you open that up to 
artists and entrepreneurs and athletes. What, what will follow from that? You have Elon Musk with SpaceX proposing to land humans on Mars in the next decade. You know, what happens when we, you know, send wave after wave of, of people to become the first settlers on another planet? So it's, it's a time for, for ambition. It's a time for, for dreams, but it's also time for pushing the boundaries of our, of our technology to achieve those dreams. And it's, it's anyone's guess as to what will happen next. But the, the cool part about being alive in a, in a day where we're as empowered as we've ever been um, is that we can be a part of this and we can architect the future that we want to see. In addition to being a, a citizen astronaut, you're also an aquanaut. Can you talk briefly about what that means and, and some of the work that you're doing in, uh, in the ocean? Yeah, so right now I am an honorary aquanaut or aquanaut candidate. And by the end of this year, I, I will be a fully fledged aquanaut. So if you have spent 24 hours in saturation, you get your aquanaut designation. So I recently completed a hyperbaric and dive medicine course with the World Extreme Medicine um, Organization. And that took me to Aquarius Reef Base, which is one of the world's only, if not only, undersea research laboratories. This is where NASA runs its NEMO or um, NASA and Extreme Environment Mission Operations. Uh, missions. So they send astronauts um, under the sea for up to 16 days at a time to run science and conduct work under the under the water. And so as part of this course, I got to spend a night underwater at the Aquarius Reef Base. And it was the most incredible experience. You're in this habitat and there's there's goliath groupers and schools of fish just swimming by your window. And, you know, you just can't tear yourself away from the, the ocean outside. And that was just it was it was indescribable, indescribable how cool it was to be in that environment. And so I'm actually going back, not to Aquarius Reef Base, but to the Jewels Undersea Lodge, also in the Florida Keys, later this year to partake in my first underwater mission over five days where we'll be doing science and testing technology payloads underwater and working with the Coral Restoration Foundation to look at science related to coral preservation. And that's where I'll get my aquanaut designation. And so to me, this is incredibly exciting, um, you know, to be an explorer, not just, in, not just in space, but in the ocean as well. And for those who wonder, you know, what's, you know, what's the connection between space and ocean exploration? We actually know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our oceans. We have more data looking at the, the geography and the geology of the moon than we do of our oceans. We've only mapped 5% of the oceans to date, and we have put more men, 12 people on the moon, than we have sent to the deepest part of the ocean at the Marianas Trench, where only four people have walked before. That's incredible. In addition to um, space and medicine, you have also a deep interest in martial arts. You've been practicing Taekwondo for 17 years. You're a second degree black belt, and you've also competed in a world Taekwondo competition as a member of Canada's Taekwondo team. And you recently also won your first amateur Muay Thai competition, which is the Thai boxing martial arts skill in Thailand. Can you describe what drew you to that and, and what it has taught you in uh, fighting in that uh, competition? 
Yeah, so I have been in Taekwondo for 20 years now, and that, that was part of a childhood ambition that I'd set up for myself that I am going to get a black belt in something, and that something ended up being Taekwondo. And, you know, a lot for a lot of people, the, the concept of a black belt is an achievement in and of itself. But for anyone who stays in any martial art for an extended period of time, a black belt is a license to, to learn at a whole new level. It's the equivalent of going from your private pilot's license to your commercial. It's the equivalent of graduating from medical school to residency. You're in a whole new ballgame. So I never truly realized what competition and what a cognitive and physical game it is to compete as a martial artist until I reached the black belt level. And, you know, it, it's very humbling, you know, suddenly where I'd been meddling at every tournament I was at, at a, at a color belt, you know, there would be times when you walked away um, medalist, regardless of how much time you would put into, into training for a competition. So Taekwondo has taught me so much about, you know, physical prowess, about discipline when it comes to training, and about creating a community that's, that's inclusive for all and that empowers anyone, whether they're man, woman, child, to, to compete at their best performance. Muay Thai is something that I've always been interested in, that I dabbled a little bit here and there while I was in Canada, and then finally had the opportunity to go to a Muay Thai fight camp um, for the first time in 2015 and just train like, you know, you've never trained before. You know, you train for two hours in the morning, train for two hours at night, you go swim, you know, a few laps in the, in the pool in between, you're walking to and from your, your hotel to your training camp. You're doing this all in 36 degrees Celsius heat, which is something ridiculous, like um, 90, 96, 98 Fahrenheit. You're sweating buckets and you're just really pushing your limits. And so the last time I did that for three years consecutively. And the last time I was there, there was the opportunity to fight in my first amateur Muay Thai fight. And, you know, as I say, when in Thailand, when in Rome, you may as well. And um, that was something I never saw coming. Um, but that was just a, you know, an, an, experience, an experience unlike any other I've ever had. How, how challenging was it? And what did you learn from that experience? Sure. Yeah. Um, so that experience taught me so much. And so, um, you know, they try to match you evenly by weight and by skill level. But the only other girl who'd signed up for the fight was this German MMA uh, and boxer lady who, you know, was, was skilled. I would watch her in class. She, you know, she had some good technique. She outweighed me by 35 pounds. But I went into that fight thinking it's not just, you know, the, the, the mentality in which you take to, to your fights or even to your, to your life really gauges how your outcomes um, turn out. And so I initially went in thinking, how do I survive this? And then I thought, no, how do I win this? You know, I don't want to leave anything on the table. And as skilled as you can be as a fighter, it's not just about who's the most skilled fighter. It's about who wants it more and who's the best fighter that night. And, you know, it was, it was a harrowing experience. Some things didn't go right. Um, my contact lens was punched out in the first 30 seconds. So I was kind of fighting without any depth perception, which tends to be pretty important as it turns out in martial arts. And they promised us, regardless of the outcome, whether it was win, lose, or tie, after three rounds, they would call it. And so I gave it everything I have. I, I, I had I had no gas left in the tank. And at the end of the third round, I felt my hand go up. 
And then I saw her head go up and it was a tie. And I thought, okay, well, you know, at least I fought as hard as I could. And then the crowd started chanting, one more round, one more round. And they took it to a fourth round despite everything. And I thought, you know, at this point, it was just an effort to like bring up your leg to kick or bring up your arm to fight, uh, to punch. And I thought, okay, you know what, at least I'm just going to go out with a bang. And I ended up winning that fight. And it was just all about all that training, all that discipline, all about saying, you know, I will leave nothing on the table. And it was just an incredible um, push yourself kind of experience. That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that and for joining me today. Where can people learn more about you? So if anyone wants to find me, they can find me on Twitter at Shauna Pandya. S-H-A-W-N-A-P-A-N-D-Y-A. That is also my Instagram handle. Um, They can also find me on Facebook, Dr. Shauna Pandya. And I will look for you there. And if you have any questions or just want to connect, come say hi. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Shauna Pandya is a physician, speaker, citizen scientist, astronaut, and martial artist. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.